Well, if you have your Bible, it's Exodus chapter 9 this evening is where we pick up in our study together here. We've been watching as God has been seeking to deliver the children of Israel out of their bondage there in Egypt and has been using Moses and Aaron as they've gone in to speak to Pharaoh, asking, pleading, God speaking directly to him repeatedly, let my people go that they may serve me. And uh, unfortunately, as we have watched the pattern of Pharaoh's heart as a dictator, as a very arrogant individual, rejecting, resistant to God and to his voice in his life, that Pharaoh has continued to harden his heart. In fact, we left off once again at the end of chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, and neither would he let the people go. So that's a a perfect summarization of what we've been seeing in the last few chapters and this process thus far where already God has bought four plagues as we've seen uh, against Pharaoh and the people of Egypt again trying to convince Pharaoh to submit to the Lord trying to bring him to conviction for his own sin and rebellion against God to show and authenticate that he is the one true and living God and that the many gods and idols they worshipped were just false gods. But unfortunately, Pharaoh, after four plagues still and the discomfort and all the problems that it's brought to him and to his people, has just continuously in this pattern hardened his heart and refusing to let the people go. So as we come to chapter 9, verse 1, we now come to this fifth plague of 10, as we will see. It says, chapter 9, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him... Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. So again, God stays consistent with his message. God does not alter his message. God does not alter his word. Uh, Whether man responds to his word or submits to his message, uh, God never changes the message, and he never will. Uh, And once again, God continues to just uh, send forth Moses. And and again, I wonder from Moses' perspective, if he, in some senses, as he's watching this resistance, is thinking, maybe a different message, God? Maybe maybe if we approach this a different way, uh, there'd be a better response. And, And I appreciate the heart of the Lord in this, is that God wasn't necessarily so much overly concerned about the response god was concerned about the consistency and the faithfulness of moses just proclaiming the word of god in its simple authentic truth speaking what god had spoke and 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 god wasn't concerned uh, in regards to you know if altering the message would get a better response he said moses you go back and you say the same thing again Say the same thing again. Let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 2, God continues to Pharaoh, For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, and that was the problem, he continued to refuse God's instruction. Behold, verse 3, the warning, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field. Now, if I were Pharaoh, remember one of the last plagues, when his magicians and sorcerers and so forth couldn't duplicate the supernatural miraculous work of the Lord in the plague, and they wanted to bring to Pharaoh's attention, listen, this God, this Yahweh God that these men represent, uh, we are not even in his league. This is the, remember they said, finger of God. God showed his incredible power, and, and his magicians and sorcerers referred to that as the finger of God. 
Well, if that's what the finger of God was accomplishing, as soon as I heard the hand of the Lord, wow, that's going to be way more intense. If the finger of the Lord just brought that miraculous plague against us, what in the world does the hand of the Lord have the capability to do in the power behind the hand of the Lord, let alone the arm of the Lord? You know, we have these terms in the Bible. Behold, God warns the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. So God was going to bring some sort of a disease, a pestilence. We're not told exactly what it was, but something that we'll see that will cause a widespread death among a lot of the animals in the kingdom there in Egypt. Now, two things. One, first of all, a lot of those animals that are referred to there were looked upon as sacred. So again, this was a judgment against their gods. They worshipped a lot of their animals as having a, a sacred purpose in their midst. Uh, not to mention the fact that animals in an ancient culture like this basically uh, were sort of the backbone to the economy. If you can understand what I mean by that, you have an agrarian culture, you have a culture like this in the ancient day, animals like this, you know, cattle in the field and horses and donkeys and camels, uh, you know, these were major components to the building blocks of an economy in that day. So basically what God is speaking of here is when he's going to send a severe pestilence against all the animals there in the fields of Egypt and throughout the land, God's basically speaking about economic collapse in a sense. I mean, this would literally break the backbone of the Egyptian economy. It's almost like God is saying, I'm going to bring sanctions against your economy in a very severe way, in a very strong way that God was going to bring, in a sense, an economic sanction. He was going to collapse their economy to try and get their attention. And the Lord, verse 4, notice, again, we saw this earlier, will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. So again, we see God in his nature uh, making a distinction in this judgment as his wrath is, is, is in a sense poured out in some measure. God makes a distinction between his people and those who are not his people. It says here that God will make a difference. This plague and this severe pestilence will come upon the livestock of Egypt, but it won't harm or affect in some way God will shield and preserve the livestock of the children of Israel. So again, we see the heart and nature of God that he can make a distinction. God can make a difference when he brings his judgment or pours out his wrath. He is more than capable of doing that. And what a wonderful thing to see the preserving hand of the Lord. You know, here's something that is crushing the economy of Egypt and their animals are dying off and there's sort of this, as I said, sort of this economic breakdown. But yet in the midst of that, God is intervening and preserving his people while everyone else is suffering. And I like this. You know, this encourages me that when the world around us is falling apart, and Egypt is a type of the world, in the Bible we know that, that the world around us may go through economic collapse and things may be falling apart and you know, just coming apart at the seams, but God in his graciousness and kindness as a good and loving heavenly father, that way may be affected in some way, at the same time in his love can intervene and preserve his people. 
and can in his graciousness somehow preserve us when everyone else is experiencing the repercussions of the the world culture in a sense that God is able to make an intervention. And that gives me great comfort as a child of God to know that I have a father that's taking care of me and is going to make sure and he can preserve who I am and what belongs to me even when there maybe there's great at times devastation and collapse happening all around me in the Egypt or the world that I'm a part of. Verse 5, and then the Lord, notice, appointed a set time because he wants to indicate that this wasn't just happenstance. So God says, I'm going to make it very clear this wasn't just coincidence. It didn't just happen by chance, this severe pestilence. As again, there were times when there were no doubt pestilences that would happen, when there were locust plagues. We'll see that happen tonight as well in, in one of the plagues. So God wanted to make it very clear that this was happening because he was directly behind it. So therefore God sets an appointed time saying tomorrow. So there's no question where it came from. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So God sets a time and he says it will happen exactly tomorrow and I'll be the one doing it. So the Lord did this thing on the next day and all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the children of Israel, not, interesting, notice, not one died. So somehow as this disease, pestilence spread around to all the animals, Again, the preservation of God, God kept his word. What God speaks, God keeps. And if God speaks his word and declares something and gives a promise, we can be absolutely promised. What the mouth of the Lord has spoken, the Bible says the hand of the Lord will fulfill. And if God has spoken something with his mouth, God will fulfill it with his hand. In this case, God said, look, all these other animals will be sick and dying but these animals will be preserved. I'll protect the children of Israel's flocks and herds to care for them. And notice, God does it 100% accurate, not even one. I mean, you would talk about when God's involved, uh, God's in complete control. And, and not to the slightest degree is there any mistake or any shortcoming on God's end. Not one animal of all the children. I mean, to me, I have my Bible, three words, uh, three letters there, W-O-W. I wrote, wow. Because to me, I, I just look at that, I, I just contemplate that in a logical sense. If you just think that out, wow, I mean, that's impressive. That is really impressive that the hand of the Lord was able to protect from that disease spreading. And God's able to do that. He's a miracle-working God. And God can protect and preserve if he declares and determines to. Verse 7, then, notice, this was, here's why it's a wow, because verse 7 indicates that. Then Pharaoh sent... And indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. So Pharaoh was so you got to go. He sent people out to check it out. You got to go see. You got to go check. It couldn't be possible. How could all of our animals have died in this severe pestilence? And and he apparently sent people to go investigate it because it was so shocking to him. It baffled him. How could this honestly be possible? It, it didn't make logical sense. But God supersedes logic, and God works in miraculous ways. He says he sent, and indeed, just as God declared, not one of the livestock was dead of all the Israelites. Now, you would think, oh my goodness, I should humble myself and submit to this incredible miracle-working God who keeps showing himself 
so real, so faithful, so strong. He tells me things and he does exactly what he says. And here, God, you want to talk about blinker light after blink, 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 blink. Pharaoh, how many signs, how many indications do I have to give to you again and again? But tragically, this again, this is what just reminds me, the sobering reality of the hardness and the capacity of the hardness of a human heart and free will it's just peppered all throughout this it says but the heart of pharaoh became hard amazing amazing but yet something that is the capacity of every one of us as human beings and it's the unfortunately the pattern of many people like pharaoh in our world you know pharaoh is just one example you don't have to be a world dictator and a you know, a, a high-powered uh, individual to be arrogant and hard-hearted and reject the Lord. Uh, you know, anyone has the and that is the that is the capacity and that is the pattern tragically of many people, of many people who God seeks to reveal Himself and He makes effort after effort and He does such a good job. I mean, it's not like God doesn't do a convincing work when He tries to reveal Himself to people. Would you agree? I mean. He does a pretty good job when he seeks to reveal himself, and yet, despite the overwhelming evidence, still many times, like Pharaoh, the pattern of people is the heart of people, They it becomes hard. And that is the, the dangerous tendency, because when a person hears the voice of the Lord and God speaks to them, and they choose to resist that and to deafen their ears and to not respond... It, again, if I can illustrate, it's almost like a layer of callous goes over their heart, which is where God is convinced. God speaks in the language of the heart. And, and just like if you you know, aren't used to working with your hands and you start to do things with your hands and you begin to you know, get at first a sore spot because of the sensitivity of your skin and then you continue to do the same thing day after day, you eventually get calluses. And that callus is basically just deadened skin so that you don't feel the sensation anymore. You form a callus. And that dead layer of skin hinders you from feeling the pain sensation. Same way if you play guitar, same kind of a thing. You, you have, It hurts, but eventually you get calluses. And the human heart can get a callus over it. You can get layers of callus. And every time a person rejects, every time a person resists, every time a person refuses to respond to the voice of the Lord, the scary but very true reality is... They're putting another layer of callus over their heart. And they are making it that much more difficult to hear God the next time he speaks to them. And that's why people can get in this pattern. And that's why we have to be very careful too that when we hear the Lord's voice, that we want to be quick to respond because when we resist the voice of the Lord to ourselves, in a sense, we harden our hearts slightly, we put a callus over our heart, and we do a great disservice to ourselves because it becomes that much more difficult the next time when God's trying to speak to us to hear him as clearly. So the greatest thing we can do to keep a tender heart towards the Lord is to be quickly obedient, regularly responsive. When he speaks to us, be responsive rather than resisting or hardening our heart in any way. And that was what Pharaoh's pattern was, and it was a great shame where it resulted in for him. Verse 8, so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, here comes plague number 6, take yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens. Notice, no warning with this sixth plague. Again, the plagues, the first nine plagues come in couplets of three. The first two have a warning attached to them. The third plague just comes without any warning. 
So that happened at plague three, happens here with plague six, it'll happen with the ninth plague. No warning this time, God just turns up the severity, he just tells Moses to do something, gives no warning to Pharaoh whatsoever with the sixth plague. Take handfuls of ashes from a furnace, let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh. And again, was there something symbolic in this? No, we can't be certain. The more important thing was the literal outcome of it, verse 9, and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores. And the language there indicates, uh, you know, pus-filled open wounds. So, I mean, the, the indication here, if boils that break out in sores is not clear enough to you, the, the language indicates something extremely gross and extremely painful. I mean, the picture of a person with boils broken out all over them and festering sores uh, is graphic enough, and the language really emphasizes and indicates what this is. Again, was it some type of an anthrax? There, you know, people try and speculate what it could be. Uh, I don't care what it is; this doesn't sound pleasant. <laughs> uh, it sounds extremely grotesque and painful that these boils would break out in sores. Notice verse nine on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, this is kind of the first plague where really, at this point, there begins to actually be human suffering. Up to this point, you know, the frogs came, the river turned to blood, the, you know, the flies came. I mean, they were annoyances, they were discomforts, there were disruptions in their life, even the last thing, all the animals died, the, you know, so the economy's struggling. And, and, and all those things thus far, none of them really inflicted personal pain on a person's body. They were great annoyances and problems to deal with. But now, again, the level of severity is climbing here. Now they're actually being physically afflicted. Again, the level of severity is increasing as God is doing more and more severe steps to try and gain their attention. It says, verse 10, then they took the ashes from the furnace, stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians, verse 11, remember these were the uh, sidekicks to Pharaoh who were trying to duplicate the miracles. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. So if you can imagine, I mean, here are these guys, you know, looking at one another. And, and again, they got to be looking at Pharaoh going, Pharaoh, look at us. Look at us. Look, at some point there had to be through this process, conversation and interaction going on, dialogue between people like, I mean, this, this is painful. This is horrible. I mean, how grotesque they all looked. Again, these are his magicians, the people who are his cabinet members. Everyone is plagued with this, verse 12. But the Lord, we now read, notice, hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, notice, just as the Lord, past tense, had spoken to Moses. In other words, no surprise to God. This whole thing of Pharaoh resisting God, hardening his heart against God, rejecting God. It's not like God's taken by surprise in this. God's sovereign. God told Moses before he even went into Pharaoh, look, Moses, this is your mission. This is your calling. But I'm telling you in advance, you're going to proclaim a message and it's not going to be responded to. 
You're going to speak the truth, and it's going to be rejected. And God told Moses in advance, this is your ministry, but it's not going to be easy. There's not going to be instant success. Uh, you know, People are not going to be responsive right away. It's not going to look like what you're doing honestly is authenticated because there's going to be a complete resistance, and Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. God knew in advance. This wasn't a surprise to the Lord. Again, but how many times, we, if you go back and trace, over a half a dozen times we have read this term, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And now verse 12 here in chapter 9 we read, and the Lord, scary, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And when you look at the language there, it indicates the Lord made strong or strengthened the condition of Pharaoh's heart. The idea being that as Pharaoh continued to say no, 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 and reject and resist, God, in a sense, ultimately just honors his choice and grants him his freedom to choose and, in a sense, strengthens him in the position of his rejection. And, in a sense, God allows him to have the desire of his heart rather than forcing him to do something. God does not violate his free will. And to me, this is a very, very important thing to understand that when a person hardens their heart to God and rejects God and resists God, again, it, it seems, again, and the Bible tells us of, of a time when a person can come to a place where God says they would not believe, they would not believe, and then God says, and they cannot believe. What does that mean? I think it means what it says and says what it means. I don't know how it all plays out, but that's a pretty strong warning. That God says a person can continue to harden their heart and harden their heart and harden their heart to where they get to a place where their heart becomes so calloused and hardened in a sense God says, okay, I will give you what you want then. I will, I will allow you, I will firm you in that position of rejection. Again, you, well, wait a minute, how many times do you get? Do you get six times? Do you get 16 times? I think God's extremely gracious, don't get me wrong. If I'm worried about somebody until their last dying breath on their deathbed and still trying to preach the gospel to them, I guarantee you God's a lot more persistent and concerned than we are because he understands eternal realities way more than we do. But at the same time, we cannot play down the reality of what the Bible teaches of the importance of realizing that it's a dangerous thing to harden your heart to the voice of the living God. It's a dangerous thing to reject the gospel message of Jesus Christ, to refuse the voice of the Lord speaking to our hearts. And Pharaoh's pattern here is a biblical reality and just a very sobering thing. How that plays out in each person's life, I don't fully understand in that sense, but the reality is there and the Lord made strong in a sense stiffened Pharaoh in this place so that just as God spoke, it came to pass without God being surprised, the Lord, in a sense, granted him what he ultimately desired in his rejection. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. Again, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, God says, I will send all my plagues to your very heart. In other words, Pharaoh, I'm going to, I'm going to, Get as severe as I possibly can to get down to the very depths of your heart. Again, God doesn't God doesn't completely cast him off yet. God's still working with him in the midst of this. God says, I'm going to send my plagues down to your very heart on your servants and your people. Again, why? Look at verse 14. You can't fault God in this. Very clearly. I have an underline in my Bible. God says, that you may know 
that there is none like me in all the earth. How many times to read that? That in these plagues and these dealings with Pharaoh, God keeps saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I'm doing this that you might know me. God's trying to reveal himself to Pharaoh. That you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God wanted Pharaoh to experience his revelation. Verse 15, interesting statement God makes here to Pharaoh. He says to Pharaoh, verse 15, Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. Notice verse 15, if I had fully stretched out my hand. What's God saying? He's saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if you think this is severe, all the consequences that have come so far have been tempered with tremendous mercy. You see, in the midst of all this, as God's disciplining Pharaoh and he's bringing his judgments in one sense, all of that was coming through the filter of the tremendous mercy of God. God's saying, Pharaoh, if you think that's power, Pharaoh, you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything of my power. If I wanted to, Pharaoh, I could have wiped you and your people out in one sweep of my hand if I wanted to. Everything I've done so far has been very merciful. God had been incredibly merciful. I mean, you just step back and think of it for a minute. Here is creator God. He created this individual's life. He's keeping their involuntary muscles working. He's keeping Pharaoh's heart beating. Pharaoh's not keeping his own heart beating. He's keeping Pharaoh's lungs, you know, breathing, exhaling and inhaling. He's, you know, giving Pharaoh life and, and the rain comes on the just and the unjust. And, and, and here is loving Yahweh God, creator of the heavens and the earth, containing this person's life, holding it in the palm of his hand. And you have this human being with the audacity to say, no, I'm not serving you. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm in charge. I'm the captain of my own. If you if you think about the, you know, we think of the frustration as a parent if you have one of your kids show a little disrespect towards you. I, I have very minimal tolerance for disrespect with my children. You know, I, I can take mistakes, disobedience, you made a bad decision. But as a parent, and especially as a father, I have a real low tolerance level for disrespect. Maybe it's just my personal conviction, but at least I feel like that, that is something, given the dynamic in a relationship, that I should be entitled to given the relationship dynamic. If that's the case from a human level and how that, you know, are you kidding me? You're, you're going to talk to me? <laughs> Can you imagine to think about the reality of us toward God? And God here says, Pharaoh, do you not realize I'm trying to do this that you may know me? And if I had stretched out my hand, he says, you would have been cut off from the earth. This was all God's mercy in the midst of even these very things. Verse 16, but indeed, he says, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you, some believe to you, and my name may be declared in all the earth, as yet you still exalt yourself against my people and that you will not let them go. So God says, Pharaoh, even in the midst of all you're doing, my sovereign rulership over all these things, he says, even in the midst of all your antics and activity, you're not foiling my plans. God says, in fact, I have in my sovereign purposes even allowed you to be raised up that I might show my power in you and through you and to you that I might declare myself 
among the earth. Again, how God was using everything that happened still to reveal himself, to glorify himself. And God says, this is the very sovereign purpose. I even allowed you to be raised up. Again, please take note. God doesn't say, this is the purpose that I created you. God's not saying, I created you to allow you to reject me so that I could damn you. And people try and take this and run. God says, this is the reason I raised you up. The reason I allowed you to be in this position of, of exaltation that I might through that sovereignly demonstrate to you and to the Egyptians and to my people in all the earth who I am by the position that Pharaoh, this man particularly, was in. Verse 18, behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause, God says, very heavy hail to rain down. Notice this was supernatural because God says such as had not been in Egypt since its founding until now. So sometimes we read of hailstorms where hail's like the size of, you know, maybe marbles or a golf ball. I mean, you know, damages cars and properties. Can you imagine what this stuff must have been like? Because it was something supernatural. It wasn't even like a natural storm, God says, such as not been in Egypt. Therefore, in light of this coming hailstorm, the Lord says, again in his mercy and grace, therefore send now. Because this hailstorm's coming, gather your livestock, all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man. Every animal which is found in the field is not brought home, and they shall die. So that's some pretty heavy hail. <laughs> You're going to talk about getting hit with a hail ball, and it little lethal. That must have been some impressive, incredibly heavy and large hail that it literally would be lethal if it hit people and hit animals. So God says, take cover. Hear my word, respond to my word, and take cover. And look what happens, verse, 9, uh, verse 20 and 21. It says, He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and livestock flee into the houses for protection and cover. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. So at this point, look what's happening. You have some people at this point, even among the Egyptians and Pharaoh's court, who are starting to grasp the concept of who God is and, the, and recognizing who he is, and they're starting to be responsive to the word of the Lord. Now, not all of them, but it tells us very clearly in verse 18, among the servants of Pharaoh. Among the servants of Pharaoh, some of them, it says, feared and heeded the word of the Lord. And so they responded to what God's word said, and they took their animals and their loved ones, and they took cover and you see two responses to the word of God here. In verse 20, you have those who feared God and, and obeyed his word. And what happened? They were spared loss and problematic consequences in their lives because they heeded the word of the Lord. They were spared loss in this situation. And then in verse 21, you have those who did not regard the word of the Lord, those who disregarded the word of the Lord, and they suffered as a result of disregarding God's word. And the same pattern plays out in regards to God's word in its full counsel in every sense. Those You're always going to have two responses to the word of God. There are those who will obey the word of God, and when we obey the word of God, as a result of obeying the word of God, God spares us a lot of problems, and a lot of times we're spared loss and difficulties and poor consequences. of We're spared a lot of suffering as a result of obeying the word of the Lord. And when people disregard the word of the Lord, they suffer as a result of that. 
They make decisions disregarding the word of the Lord, and they suffer as a result of those decisions. They say things disregarding the ways of the word of the Lord, and they suffer the consequences, again, why? Of taking a pattern contrary to what God says in his word. So two responses and the outcomes as a result when the word of the Lord was given. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast, every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. There's a little added light show there on top of the hail. And the Lord, verse 23, rained hail on the land of Egypt, so there was hail and fire mingled with hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So again, God's distinction, his preservation of his people, his judgment coming upon Egypt, but yet him sparing, again, the storm having a distinct line. But here's this crazy storm, hail and fire mingled with hail coming down, and, and then you look over there in Goshen and there's, there's just a clear break of the storm, and the storm is not coming upon them as it was upon all the Egyptians. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron, and he said to them, I have sinned this time. Do you think so? Are you kidding me? You really think that? I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering. So this was shaking him to his core. And hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Pharaoh gives an indication which on the surface looks like maybe he's starting to have a little breakthrough. Maybe he's starting to experience a little bit of repentance. It seems in his words anyway that he's actually saying the right things. I've sinned. The Lord is right, I'm wrong, pray for me and treat the Lord. But again, you see what his primary concern was. He says, the suffering is enough. Uh, and what's he want? He wants relief. And of course, we see this, but the reality here is this. He's speaking words, but there's absolutely no sincerity in his heart. He's saying the right things, and he's proclaiming certain things, but these are words without sincere repentance. And we know that as we read out the text and see that all he's really looking for is just relief from the consequences. Pharaoh had this pattern where he wanted relief from consequences as the result of his decisions, but he never really wanted to repent. He just wanted relief without repentance. And many people fall into that pattern. When the problems and the consequences come, oh, you know, and and they can say the right things. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve the Lord now, and yeah, right on, and oh, I really, meant, and they can say all, and and make all the right statements, and pray for me. Would you pray for me? Pray for me right now. I'm, I'm wretched. I'm turning around. I'm gonna start following Jesus. And then the reality is, all they're looking for is relief from the problems and the pressures they're under as a result of their actions and prior decisions. But there's no genuine repentance in their heart. 
and, and this was the case and the pattern with Pharaoh here. So Moses, verse 29, said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, interesting, his mercy towards him, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail. Again, look, God was still being gracious to him. That you may know, and God knows his insincerity, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, Moses says, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Again, I believe again a word of knowledge God reveals to Moses. This guy's completely insincere. He's just blowing spiritual smoke. He doesn't mean a thing that he's saying. So Moses calls him to account for it. He says to him, look, I'll pray for you. And I like this because it shows the grace of God. Because you know as well as I do, maybe you have somebody in your life where you have that kind of encounter with. And I know for me, for some people, it's almost like a cyclical thing. You know, every so often I you know, get the call again or you see him again. And it's the, oh, man, I'm, I've really been in sin. And, and I, I just, God's right. And I've been so wrong. But I'm ready. That's it. And would you pray for me that God? And, and I, there are times in my flesh I want to say, pray for you. Why bother praying for you? I'm going to waste a good prayer on you? You know, it's like, I mean, it sounds... Why even bother praying? You know, want to pray to the couch or something. I know what you're going to do tomorrow, or I know what you're going to do. And there's a temptation in my flesh. But, you know, the Bible says love believes all things. It hopes all things. And I, I, I like the approach of Moses here. It shows you that he was just a true man of God. He says, I'll pray for you still. He says in the next breath, I, but I know you're not going to repent. <laughs> but I will pray for you still. And, and I just, I think it's a good pattern here. Again, he's speaking the truth to him, but at the same time, uh, you know, he is saying to him, look, I'll pray for you because I want you to know, he says. And he still prays for him. And I think we should do the same as well. I don't think we should ever diminish ministry to someone, even though we have to speak honestly to them sometimes. Verse 31, now the flax and barley, which were two crops for clothing and food, struck for the barley was in the head and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, that is by the hill, for they are late crops. And again, here the Bible just gives us a little indication of the time frame. The fact that the barley was in the head and the flax in the bud indicates that you're probably sometime around the late January, February time frame, because that's when these particular crops would be budding forth where the wheat and the spelt are later crops that budded later on. It's just kind of giving us a reference uh, on the calendar that this was around the February time. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, spread out his hands to the Lord, and then the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain was poured out on the earth, was not poured out on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, the thunder had ceased, notice, he sinned yet more. And hardened his heart and his servants, so the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. What a sad statement. Verse 34, when Pharaoh saw the rain, hail, and thunder ceased, again, when the storm went away, when a little bit of relief came in his pressure and stormy circumstances, when the storm ceased, he sinned yet more. I don't think he sinned. It seems he, it compounded. See, there's the danger of it. Sometimes you go back, you go back even deeper when you go back. He sinned yet more and hardened his heart. And his servants, even it says at this point, were starting to follow along in his ungodly leadership. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, 
For I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before them. Verse 2, and there is another purpose, God says to Moses, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I've done in Egypt, which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So God tells Moses here, Moses, part of my concern in this situation, as my power is being displayed and my works are being done, he says, verse 2, he puts an injunction upon Moses as a man, as a leader, as a husband and a father, He says that you may tell, notice, your son and your grandsons the mighty things that I have done. Again, it is a concern of the heart of the Lord and especially for those of us as husbands, as fathers, but certainly just as parents and as grandparents that we do convey to the next generation the works of God. That we as this generation of the church convey to the next generation of the church the works of the Lord and what God has done and that we transmit the truths of the gospel and not just the doctrinal truths, but we also declare the ways that we've seen God work. It's one thing to declare doctrine to our children and to our grandchildren, but it's just as important to declare to them, can I tell you what God did in my life? Can we tell you what the Lord did in the church or how the Lord worked in this way or how he helped me and your mom or how he helped me and your dad or this situation happened. You know, that's the stuff, the power of testimony that causes the next generation to say, and we should serve the Lord too. And we should follow the Lord as well. And the Lord puts that, I think, responsibility upon us that we are called to tell the next generation the mighty works of the Lord, that God would give us the grace and the faithfulness to do that as Moses here was commanded by the Lord to do the same in his generation to those upcoming. So Moses, verse 3, And Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews to Pharaoh, notice, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me. Let my people go that they may serve me. So right there, God zeroes in. It's almost like a diagnosis. God zeroes right in and he he puts his finger right on the very basic problem in Pharaoh's life. It was one simple thing. It was pride. It was arrogance. It was pride and arrogance. All the other things were symptomatic Uh, And and, and they were just symptoms manifesting the problem of his heart condition is that he was proud. He was prideful and arrogant because God says here very simply, it's a perfect summarization of, of his refusal. How long will you refuse, Pharaoh, to humble yourself before me? That was the bottom line. That was the primary question that God was trying to get across to Pharaoh's heart. Interesting, if you're uh, someone who takes note of these things, there's the first time the word humble shows up in the Bible. I would encourage you to take that and to work through and think through the circumstances and the person of Pharaoh, what God's trying to say there, and really get a good grasp on what humility really means. And and really the antithesis of, of, of what pride also is as well. You know, recently, I actually myself, uh, periodically in lieu of reading through books of the Bible for my devotional time, sometimes I'll just take a word and I'll, I'll just print out in my Bible program a word and every time it shows up in the Bible and I'll just go through and study every 
place in the Bible where that word shows up. I've done it with grace before. I've done it with faith before. Most recently, I actually just did it with the word humble and humility. And just just a wonderful thing to just go through it. Every time that word shows up, just to glean another facet of understanding of what is what does grace really mean in its fullest sense? What does faith really mean? What does humility or being humble really mean? Or what does love really mean? And here's the first time the Bible sets this word humble before us, and that's an important word. Because doesn't the Bible tell us things like humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time? The Bible tells us God resists or opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I need a lot of grace in my life, which is one of the reasons I wanted to study humility. Because I I certainly need a lot more grace, Lord. Uh, And I'm not real crazy about the idea of you resisting or opposing me. Uh, So I want to understand more, just as a man, what does it mean to truly be humble before you? Because we we even have some false ideas. We we can almost pretend to be humble. There's false humility. Uh, You know, we can self-deprecate ourselves and think that's being humble. And sometimes that's, that's a reverse uh, you know, humility, that's false, that's, that's just a form of pride, you know, oh, I'm so horrible, I'm this, and that, and, and, and what are we doing? Well, in arrogancy, we're fishing for compliments, oh, Paul, I'm such a rotten guy, I'm, just, I'm such an idiot, oh, Tony, no, you're not, you're really, you're really a sharp guy, you're a good guy, you're smart, and, oh, thanks, and what am I doing? I'm fishing for compliments, you know, I talked to my children about this on occasion, what, what are you doing, you're, Stop the negative talk. You're just you're just fishing for a compliment. I understand sometimes we get discouraged. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes we honestly get discouraged and we have a low view of ourselves. I know there's balance in these things. But to understand, what does it really mean to be humble? What does it really mean to humble myself before God? To realize who I really am before God and to just live who I am and not to have to, you know, elevate myself or make excuses for myself to have a more high view of myself or to have an overly low view of myself i just i am who i am before god Uh, and that was the essence of humility how long pharaoh will you refuse to humble yourself before me i don't care if you're humbled before other people how long till you humble yourself before me that was the basis of humility that relational dynamic between pharaoh and the god who created him He says again, and never good as he said when God says this, or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth so that not one will be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains from the hail. They shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers or your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, look, they're trying to get his attention, Pharaoh. And this took courage to say to a dictator who could off with your head. I mean, this is Pharaoh of Egypt here, but it's gotten so severe His cabinet members and servants are in such a place of desperation, they're thinking somebody's got to try and speak the truth to this guy. He is just a pompous, arrogant dictator who's lost his mind. And all he cares about is his position and maintaining his position. He doesn't care what it does to the people that he's serving. And because of that, his servants finally come to him and say, Pharaoh, how long 
Shall this man become a snare to us? Let Notice, let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? See, they're trying to get Pharaoh's attention. Again, God's using even the people around him, saying to him, Pharaoh, no disrespect, but Pharaoh, what are you doing? You're so consumed with yourself and trying to be in charge and in control and and save face and retain your position so hard that you don't care an ounce about what it's done to all the people that you're in the position you are to try and serve and take care of. The whole land and everybody in the, in, the, in, in the culture is being destroyed. Lives are being devastated and destroyed. And it's all because you just won't humble yourself and submit to doing the right thing. And they're trying to plead with him to get his attention. Do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? Verse 8, so Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh. And he said to them, again in quite insincerity, go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going, he says? Who are you going to take with you? And Moses said, we will go with our young and our old, our sons, our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we will go. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, the Lord, listen to this guy's Eric, the Lord had better be with you. He's just kind of like this sarcasm. The Lord better be with you if you're going to go do that. When I let you and your little ones go, beware Evil's ahead of you, who you think you are leaving my jurisdiction. And then verse 11, he quickly just turns around, forget about it, not so. Go now, you who are men, notice he's making it exclusive and specific who he'll release, just the men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven, the idea forcefully, out from Pharaoh's presence. So again here, what's Pharaoh doing? trying to control the situation, still in his pompous, arrogant, self-controlling, he wants to be, he's offering the Israelites, what, another compromise. We saw two compromises prior that he offered them. Once again, he offers them a compromise to complete obedience to the word of God and what God has asked them to do, which was his will, which was that all of the families and their flocks and herds, remember, went out into the wilderness for three days and they would sacrifice to the Lord. And here, Moses, as he's asked, you know, who's going to go? Well, Moses says, everyone, all of our flocks and herds, our wives, our children, our entire families are all going to go and worship and sacrifice to the Lord. And Pharaoh ultimately says here in his effort to try and control and offer a compromise, he says, no, just the men can go. You men can go, but don't you dare take your families. And he offers them a compromise. And of course, what he's thinking is, if just the men go and they leave their families behind, they're certainly not going to depart. They'll come back and resubmit themselves, and he could stay in control if just the men went, because they'll come back for their wives and children. But again, as we look at these compromises, and we talked about the prior ones, this is so like, in typology, exactly what the evil king, the god of this age, the devil does to you and I. He offers us compromises, just like we talked about in the prior two. And this is exactly what the voice of Satan says to you and I so many times. He may say something like, look, that's fine. I mean, as, as a man, that's, if you want to serve the Lord, that's okay. If you, that's fine. You want to serve the Lord, but don't go trying to get your whole family involved. 
I mean, or, you know, as parents, if, if you want to follow Jesus and you want to, you know, go sacrifice to the Lord and dedicate yourself, that's fine. But, you know, I mean, don't force that stuff on your children. I mean, you don't need to bring your children along with you. Don't inflict that upon them. I mean, in all due respect, I mean, you worship the God you want to worship and, and just let them figure out what they want to figure out on their own. But don't go trying to involve your children, too. You can go, but don't try and get your whole family drawn into this God thing. And then exactly what the devil tries to tell us and what the world wants to try and tell us through the lying message of the devil when the Bible tells us the exact opposite is the heart of God. God says, no, you raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they get old, they won't depart from it. It's the total opposite of what God's will and his word says to us. But it's a lying compromise the devil proposes. And we have to be aware of that and not concede to it as Moses would not concede to it. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come upon the land and eat every herb of the land and all the hail that's left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And typically locust plagues would, uh, would come with a wind. So I find it interesting that God supernaturally use nature here you have god doing something supernaturally natural he used the wind and a lot of times god because he controls everything will do supernatural things in a very natural way and, and, and i love the way the lord can do that sometimes we expect when god works there's you know handwriting in the sky and lights and flashing bells and many times god does things in a supernaturally natural way god uses natural means and he just controls them by his supernatural authority over them. He brings an east wind and it says all day and night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts, 14. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt, rested on the territory of Egypt. And they were very severe, it says. Previously, there had been such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them the Bible says, for they covered the face of the whole earth. And, of course, referring to the local geography there, of course, we know. So that the land was darkened. Imagine, that's a lot of locusts. <laughs> so that the land looked dark. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees and on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, Locust swarms have come and gone throughout history, if you've ever seen them before personally or a documentary or, you know, read things historically, and they can come and they can ravage lands and ravage crops. I mean, a typical locust swarm, you know, can cover many square miles and can be up to, from what I researched, billions of insects. So just imagine that, a typical locust swarm billions of locusts covering square miles and this is a supernatural locust swarm that god brings so imagine what this must have been like as the food was ravaged the crops were all destroyed in verse 16 pharaoh called for moses and aaron in haste and said again i have sinned against the lord your god and against you now therefore and doesn't he sound so sincere Please forgive my sin only this once. wonder what that means. And entreat the Lord your God that he may, again, what's his concern? That he may take away from me this death 
only. So they went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. And there remained, here's another wow one for me, there remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. I mean, it's amazing that God could bring that and then miraculously clean up any mess like that in one day. Here's this total mess over the whole land. Uh, again, Joel later on says that the Lord can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And you know, God's an amazing God because God can bring something to an end and deal with it severely. And God can also resolve things. And overnight, God can turn something around right away like that. Uh, and what an amazing thing to think that this is the God we serve. And yet here's Pharaoh, tragically, so sad. I mean, maybe we take heed and warning. Hebrews says, if you hear the Lord's voice, don't harden your heart. That's the message in all this, man. That if we hear the voice of the Lord, we don't want to harden our heart. We don't want to become like Pharaoh. Notice, making these spiritual platitudes, forgive me, I've sinned, pray for me. But what's he concerned with? Verse 7, take away from me this death only. What he wants is he wants escape from the consequences and relief from the pressure and problems without repentance in his life. And that's a dangerous place to go. When all we do is become responsive to the Lord just because we want relief from consequences or we want the pressure to be removed from our lives, but we have no genuine heart for repentance, we're in a really bad place. A really bad place. If we see somebody there, we should warn them of that dangerous pattern in their life. And if we find ourselves going there, we should be quick to examine our hearts and to be ready to repent and say, Lord, wow, I realize that I'm getting this unhealthy pattern, Lord, and I don't want to harden my heart towards you. And again, the children of Israel did the same thing and had the same capacity. So let's not just relegate this, oh, this is just to ungodly people like Pharaoh, because in Hebrews, when God says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as you did in the day of rebellion, he was saying that to, to a relation to what his people did, that the children of Israel themselves, the people of God, did that in the wilderness. They hardened their hearts, and they didn't believe God, and they didn't obey God. So something we all have to be careful of. We're going to have to close up there for tonight. Let's stand, and we'll pray together, and read ahead. We'll wrap up the plagues next time.